You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcasts, and I have Dr. Ben Long from the Australia National Union College of Science, uh, National University College of Science. Uh, Dr. Ben graduated with a PhD in plant biology from La Trobe University, working on toxic cyanobacteria, which is blue-green algae. Um, he's done a lot of postdoc work uh, and looked at cyanobacteria and the various compounds involved with them, which we'll get into. So, uh, Ben, thanks for coming. How are you doing? Good, thanks, Richard. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, first question, why the fascination with cyanobacteria and the compounds associated with them and with plants? What uh, kind of drives your interest? Yeah, well, it's a really good question. I started off um, as an undergraduate student just studying uh, biochemistry and plant biology and had the opportunity to work on um, cyanobacteria as a, a research student and it was just something a bit different and a, a bit um, simple compared to most plants. I mean, plants are really complicated organisms that can grow, you know, uh, uh, hundreds of yards tall. Um, but cyanobacteria, you can grow them in a, a glass tube and it makes them simple to work with. And um, I just thought they were great fun and really simple um, little systems to get an understanding of biochemistry. So that's where I started with it. And um, they've taken me a Across a lot of a lot of fields of travel. So, what what kind of things have you studied about cyanobacteria that you found to be particularly interesting or amazing or unusual? Well, the first thing that I did with them is work on them as um, uh, to look at how they produce toxins. Most of the cyanobacteria around the world that that people know of produce toxic blooms, and I wanted to understand the toxins that that they produce. And over the years that I've been working on them, it appears they produce more, there are more and more compounds that we're finding that they produce that, um, that tend to be toxic or have some sort of strange bioactive um, characteristic. And this kind of thing is just popping up all the time, which I find is really amazing. And in the last five to ten years, for example, we've found that cyanobacteria seem to produce a strange amino acid um, called BMAA that turns out may play a role in neurodegenerative diseases, which is really quite interesting. So there's just all these amazing things that they produce that seem to play a role in our everyday lives that we're only just uh, finding out. And I think that's what's really cool about them. 
Where I, I thought I had read that uh, it's theorized that cyanobacteria integrated themselves with a prokaryotic cell to create plant cells, you know, countless millions or billions of years ago. Is that right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's one of the reasons that there's a kind of a link between what I do in plant biology. So hundreds of millions of years ago, there was an organism like an amoeba, the typical uh, diagram that you've seen in the Larson cartoon, those wobbly little organisms that might be playing guitars or something in one mm. of these cartoons. They, they tend to eat things by a process called phagocytosis. They basically gobble them up, wrap themselves around them, and they dissolve whatever they, they eat. But um, on a number of occasions in evolutionary history, this has happened, and the organisms that have been eaten have actually managed to stay alive inside um, these amoeba-like organisms and replicate. And so that's what happened with a cyanobacterial cell and it turned into uh, an algal cell that we know today that then also evolved into land plants. So there's these amazing um, abilities that a lot of organisms have had to take up another organism inside their own cells, and those organisms have become what we call organelles. So the green component of a plant cell or an algal cell is what we call a chloroplast, and they started off their evolutionary history as uh, something was that was a common ancestor to our our current day cyanobacteria, and then even for uh, animal cells, and also supposedly a mitochondria is a uh, is what what was engulfed to create a mitochondria, what kind of a cell? Yeah, so that's the same kind. Yeah, that, that's the same kind of story. It was a some kind of ancient bacterial cell that was taken up and and um, and turned into what we now call a mitochondrion. And again, the mitochondrion is a uh, an organelle um, that carries out a particular process inside um, both plant and animal cells. And that's really the, the key interesting thing about the work that I do now. So one of the things we recognize about uh, what you're, you're talking about, um, eukaryotic organisms, they're plants and animals, that we see as some sort of more further evolved organism that has within its cells that has packets of um, organelles that carry out specific biochemical reactions. And the other type of life is the prokaryotic organisms like the cyanobacteria and the bacteria that we have always a very long thought of as having no subcellular organelles. I've got, we've always thought that they had no compartments to do biochemical reactions in. But that's where the work that I do these days um, sort of it's a starting point. We have recognized over the years, uh, the last, say, two decades, that cyanobacterial cells in particular have these little organelle-like com- um, compartments inside them called carboxysomes where they carry out a major process of photosynthesis. Huh. So they, they carry out photosynthesis in like a segregated area inside their, their cytoplasm, if that's the word for it, just like uh, animal and plant yeah, cells Yeah, that's do. right. That- yeah, that, that's exactly right. Well, the, the specific process they carry out is the CO2 fixation component or the, the, the capturing of carbon dioxide and turning it into simple sugars happens inside this carboxysome structure. And it's rather than um, uh, in animal or plant cells where the organelle is an ancient organism that was bound by a, a lipid um, surrounding membrane, um, in these cases, in the case of the carboxysome, it's actually a protein capsule that looks very much like a, a virus. It's uh, icosahedral, meaning it has 20 triangular facets, 
but it's surrounded by protein and stuffed inside it at a very high concentration is this enzyme called Rubisco. An enzyme is a protein whose job it is to carry out a, a chemical reaction at very high speed. And this Rubisco enzyme is packed inside. And the way the whole system works essentially is that uh, cyanobacterial cells are floating around in the water where they don't have they don't have access to uh, the air like most plants do. They they have to get their inorganic carbon or their carbon dioxide in the form of bicarbonate. That's essentially just a dissolved form of CO2. They can pump that into their cells at really high concentrations, and then that bicarbonate will diffuse into this carboxazone structure and generate a really high concentration of carbon dioxide around the Rubisco enzyme, and that makes it work incredibly efficiently. Plants, on the other hand, they breathe they breathe carbon dioxide from the air, um, and so there's there's a relatively large amount of CO2 available to them, but they also have this Rubisco enzyme, and Rubisco is notoriously slow and inefficient. It it uh, what I mentioned that it it's uh, essentially a protein that carries out a catalytic reaction, speeding the reaction up, but the, the Rubisco reaction only happens at about two or three times per second in most land plants, so that there are other enzymes that carry out reactions at tens of thousands of uh, reactions per second. So it's really slow, and it occasionally can't tell the difference between oxygen and carbon dioxide. So sometimes the enzyme will capture oxygen from the atmosphere instead of carbon dioxide, and when it does that, plants have to carry out a very wasteful, what we consider a wasteful process uh, called photorespiration to recapture the lost carbon dioxide that happens in that process and they have to spend a lot of energy. Um, and so all organisms that photosynthesize have to do this process of capturing carbon dioxide through the Rubisco enzyme and every one of them has had to come up with a solution to the problem that the enzyme has. And land plants have got around that problem by producing a lot of the enzyme. If you have a lot of the enzyme, then there's a greater chance that you'll get the reaction happening. Um, well, from our point of view, for, yeah, a couple, couple of quick questions to maybe step back a little bit. But um, <clears throat> cyanobacteria, do they tend then to congregate around, you know, sources of bicarbonate, you know, like uh, animals with, with shells in the ocean, you know, snails, or do they tend to congregate around reefs or other places like that? That's a really good question. They they possibly um, are, are capable of locating themselves somewhere where um, their resources are uh, more predominant. But generally, um, inorganic carbon is distributed quite well within the environment, except for you know places, for example, like on the, um, uh, you know marine shores where the water's lapping or waves. There tends to be a higher concentration of of gases when you've got waves crashing. Um, so there's there's a greater propensity sometimes to find cyanobacterial cells in those kind of areas. Um, in, and in stagnant water, there tends to be low concentrations, and we you, you might find that there are low concentrations there. But usually when people see cyanobacteria, it's when there's a bloom event, and um, they, they tend to be everywhere. So I think they can make use of um, uh, quite a um, small amount of inorganic carbon uh, when it's available, and that's really... That's really their um, evolutionary advantage is that when the carbon dioxide availability or, or bicarbonate availability drops in their environment, they're actually able to adapt and switch on this system that we call a CO2 concentrating mechanism um, so that they actually have an advantage over other organisms under those conditions. And that's one of the reasons that they are able to 
form a bloom is that they can take off very quickly when the conditions are not that great for other organisms to live. And what does a bloom look like? Is this the famous red tides or you know, what does it look like to the eye? Yeah, yeah, it's similar to a, a red tide, but but obviously green or a little bit blue-green. You often see them um, around the edge of a lake or a river and uh, sometimes they can produce what we call a scum, which can be inches thick, um, like a, um, a mattress on top of the water, really thick. If you if you put a stick in, in it, it'd be like sticking a, a stick into a, a, a pail full of paint, very thick and gooey green material. And sometimes when it dies on the shoreline, um, you can see a lot of blue pigment appear. That's when you know it's dying. Um, and uh, the recommendation is if, if ever you see one of those, don't drink the water, don't swim in it, don't let pets go in it because there's a, ge- a very good chance that it, it's toxic. Well, you said uh, they produce toxins. What do they produce toxins in response to? Yeah, that's a really, really good question, and it's still a mystery despite the fact that we've been working on these kind of things for um, decades now. Uh, there's a particular um, species of cyanobacteria called Microcystis aeruginosa, which produces a toxin called microcystin, um, and we really don't know why it produces the toxin, but it, uh, just as an example of how toxic it is, when it was first isolated, it was referred to as the fast death factor. It would kill lab animals in incredibly high um, high rates at very high speeds at very low concentrations. Uh, but, but despite working on it, you know, since the 1950s, people still haven't pinned down exactly what the cell's producing it for. We know well, that, we, that uh, particular toxin is produced all the time. Yeah, I would think that they would produce certain things when they're blooming and when they're not, and then in low uh, carbonate environments and high. I mean, I would think all this is in response to in, uh, environmental pressures, right? Yeah, well, we've uh, the PhD um, project that I worked on, in fact, was looking at exactly that, trying to work out under what uh, growth conditions we find the cells producing more or less of this particular toxin called microcystin. And essentially, the the bottom line is that we found that the faster the cells grow, the more toxin that they produce. But there doesn't seem to be any deliberate switch that turns the toxin production on or off. Um, it's always on, uh, regardless of uh, what conditions the cells are growing in, unless uh, there's a, a different genetic type of the the, the organism swimming around in the water. Sometimes uh, the organism doesn't have the genes to produce the toxin. But the one that does have the genes will always produce it, and we don't know why. And it's a really good question that you ask. It's exactly the question that everyone thought. Well, there must be something controlling it, and we can't really pin it down despite decades of work. Well, what does it do to its local environment? Does it kill fish? Does it? I mean, there's got to be a reason that it produces it, or maybe it's not even a toxin if it's produced in its local environment, but it's only a toxin to things on land. I don't know. Yeah, that's that's a really good question. I think that's where we're heading with. With specifically with uh, this microcystin toxin, for example, is that it it plays a role in the cell for reasons that we still haven't exactly worked out, and it's toxic just by chance. It doesn't appear to have uh, a role in in doing much in the environment. It might have effect on some of the organisms that that feed on the cyanobacteria, so some fish and um, some very very small organisms that eat them uh, can be detrimentally affected and um, by the toxin and maybe even killed at very high doses. But we we don't think that that 
that's a major ecological role that they're playing. So there's there's not necessarily an advantage um, in production of the toxin for them under those conditions. Uh, it seems to be just by chance. And in fact, the toxin is toxic because it binds to another enzyme that nearly all eukaryotic organisms, all of those ones that have those packages inside their cells, they all have an enzyme called protein phosphatase whose job is to cut phosphate groups off proteins, which is a really key programming step to make sure certain enzymes and proteins are switched on. Um, so it, it stops that process from happening, which makes cells kind of constantly switched on, which is not a very good system to be in. You, you don't have any cellular control. And it's, it's just by chance that the toxin has this capability. And yeah, really, we just don't know. And all of the questions that you have are questions that we're still struggling with. Well, have you tried knocking out the uh, sequences of you know, RNA or whatever it is in the bacteria that code for these toxins to see what happens? Yeah, so that, obviously that was a question that, that people wanted an answer to, seeing if they could do that, and it, it's been done um, uh, probably nearly 15 to 20 years ago, or probably more than 20 years ago. And we certainly, um, people work with strains that have the toxin genes knocked out of them, and they um, those organisms seem to behave in very similar manner to the, what we call the wild type, the one that doesn't have the genes knocked out. The, all the differences seem to be, be very subtle and the toxin doesn't seem to be um, a major contributor to the physiology of the organism. So, yeah, we still don't know the answer to that and um, we're, people are still looking. Um, but I've I've moved on from toxic work and I'm more interested in the um, the CO2 capture. So I've kind of left that alone and um, I'm just keeping an eye on the literature to see what uh, kind of ideas people come up with. Yeah, what's what's the goal in studying these organisms? What like what kind of role do they serve in their local ecosystem? And then, you know, do people envision that they could be used, on, you know, in bioreactors to pull CO2 out of the air or for other uses? I mean, what's what's exciting about them? Yeah, well, it's really exciting. I mean, obviously, what the reason we know them is that they 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 tend to produce these blooms that are toxic, and there's a generally a negative connotation for them and. Um, uh, most people think that we've got to try and get rid of them. Um, but, yeah, they're a huge application in um, bioreactor work, for example, trying to produce oils from them uh, that can be used as fuel or getting them to produce other useful bioactive products. But the key thing that we're interested in is using that CO2 concentrating mechanism that I described, and we're actually trying to um, take that system and move it into crop plants to make crop plants more efficient at carbon dioxide fixation. That's the real key that we're working on, but there are other people working on, as I mentioned, uh, like oil production or capture of carbon dioxide from, uh, for example, coal-fired power plants where there's a lot of CO2 um, released from the plant during coal burning, that some of that can maybe recaptured into biomass through um, pumping exhaust gases through cyanobacterial cultures. Um, so the, the fact that they can fix carbon dioxide quite efficiently is really one of the reasons that we're interested in them from a crop plant perspective. Well, once they've fixed the carbon dioxide, what happens to it inside of the algae? What form does it take or stay in and what happens to it? Yeah, it's a good question. So exactly the same process um, biochemically happens to the carbon dioxide in cyanobacterial cells 
as does in in uh, plant cells. So essentially, the first step is via that Rubisco enzyme, where carbon dioxide is essentially glued onto the molecule that's five carbon atoms long, and in doing so, produces an intermediate um, uh, molecule that's six carbons long that gets cut in half. So we end up with two simplistic uh, sugars that are three carbons long. So that that means there are three carbon atoms glued together. Uh, one of those is a new one coming from carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So we get the production of two three-carbon simple sugars that then go on to produce more complex sugars inside the cell that essentially all of the components of the cell are then constructed from and uh, the, the cell can also extract energy from if it needs to. Now, the, that three-carbon sugar concept is the reason that we that you often hear plant scientists refer to what we call C3 photosynthesis. It's the process whereby plants and uh, all photosynthetic organisms capture carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and first turn it into something that's a C3 um, molecule. Mm, gotcha. There's a few that are C4, which I guess is a four-carbon sugar. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so C4 is a kind of CO2 concentrating mechanism uh, like cyanobacteria use, but found in plants. It uses a very complex but slightly different mechanism to to um, that that cyanobacteria use. Those plants also carry out what we call C3 photosynthesis, but but strangely enough, the very first step of the process is to take bicarbonate inside the cell and use the carbon atom inside the bicarbonate glue that into um, an organic acid and that organic acid is then pumped into a special cell uh, that we call a bundle sheet cell and then the carbon dioxide is released again from it so that it can go through that Rubisco process, the C3 process. So that that's kind of like a pump in a similar way to the cyanobacterial system. Uh, CO2 comes into the cells converted to bicarbonate just through a dissolution, a dissolving process then we get an organic acid produced from that, which is then pumped across a membrane into another cell, and then that's concentrated there so that CO2 can be released and, and captured again. Um, so there are actually some really exciting work being done by um, collaborators of ours in, in other universities around the world trying to generate a C4 rice plant. So C, sorry, rice is currently a C3 plant, which carries out this relatively inefficient um, carbon capture by producing a lot of the Rubisco enzyme. And there's a, a, a real um, scientific push currently to try and turn rice plants into C4 plants so that they can actually capture carbon dioxide more efficiently and more effectively. So what, what would be the point of turning rice into a C4 producer? Is it be more photosynthetically efficient? Yeah, so this really comes back to uh, the work that I'm working on and, and myself and colleagues uh, at various other institutions. I'm, I'm currently funded within a program called RIPE. It's called Realising Increased Photosynthetic Efficiency. It's a real mouthful. I think someone invented the word RIPE and then tried to back-translate it to something. Yeah. <laughs> but the whole, idea, the whole idea of RIPE is that we recognise that there's a, there are several aspects of the photosynthetic process that are inefficient and that those processes we can't seem to or we haven't seemed to be able to improve them through breeding. There are other parts of crop production that we've been able to improve through breeding. For example, uh, something that we call the harvest index, which is 
how much of the um, how much of photosynthesis and and plant productivity is turned into grain that we can eat. That that we managed to improve that over the last say five decades. To, well, I heard really that to um, a large extent. Yeah, I've heard like the average photosynthetic efficiency of most plants on Earth is like one percent, and we're hoping to get to one point one five or one point two percent. Yeah, it's really quite small. So there's there's like three or four components of of if you like grain yield that the plant does that that are measurable quantities. There are efficiency components. The harvest index is one of them, and and the efficiency of photosynthesis is another. Things like harvest index have improved to what we nearly at what we know are their theoretical maxima. So we've nearly bred plants to the best that they can achieve in, for example, harvest index. But photosynthetic efficiency, that's the efficiency with which a plant can capture sunlight and capture carbon dioxide and turn it into um, crop biomass, you know, like, like grain. We know that there are theoretical limits to that that we're nowhere near. So um, we can probably improve that three to fourfold um, on what we can get right now. So it's, we're really at the, the base of that. And interestingly, what I think is really quite interesting is that we haven't been able to improve any of that through breeding. And we realize that's essentially because evolution has locked um, crop plants into a certain process of uh, photosynthetic CO2 capture from the atmosphere that, is, that has limitations that it can't get around through evolutionary improvements that you would get through breeding programs. Are you able to evaluate the ideal efficiency based on the chemistry? Like, you know, the Carnot cycle for engines has a theoretical max efficiency. Has that been calculated for um, photosynthesis? Yes, exactly. Um, colleagues of ours have done that. Unfortunately, I'm not a, a, a modeling person, so that's not my... I'm not that smart on it, so let me just put it that way. But, um, but definitely, you can you can break down the expected efficiencies of all of the processes within photosynthesis and yeah, photosynthesis itself, uh, the capture of uh, light energy and and carbon dioxide. We know how efficient that should be mathematically, and we well, know we're not achieving. Yeah, what is that? Otherwise, there'd be no you know they wouldn't bother; they would just give up. So, what is you know the theoretical maximum is? Um, I think, don't quote me on it, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I think that, you know, if you, if you think of all of the components that, uh, lead to crop yield as, um, as units that add up to one, so harvest index, um, for example, is, you know, how much we can put into the grain, um, based on how much plant biomass, biomass there is, has an upper bound of, of a particular value in it when we're at about 80 to 90% of the upper efficiency value for that. But for CO2 capture, for example, and sunlight capture, we're only at about 10 to 30% of the upper limit of that value. And there are some other components um, of that yield calculation where we're up to closer around about 90% of the expected maximum. So we know that there's that gap with the photosynthetic efficiency that we could improve um, through other techniques other than uh, than using crop breeding because we know crop breeding hasn't worked. So that's really where we're working. And there are a number of biochemical factors within that photosynthetic process where we know that there are bottlenecks that we can improve. One of the key ones is the fact that crop plants use 
C3 photosynthesis. And they're, they're kind of locked into making the choice of producing a lot of the Rubisco enzyme in order to catch, uh, capture a lot of CO2 from the atmosphere. And, and that, that bottleneck means that they have to use a lot of nitrogen to produce a lot of that protein Rubisco. But from our point of view, we would prefer that that nitrogen was put into the grain, um, as an example. Uh, it also means that most crop plants have to uh, breathe a lot of the atmosphere and in doing so, just capturing one molecule of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere means that they lose something like 400 molecules of water. So there's real oh, wow. efficiencies in, in, in... So, yeah, water use is a major problem with crops because just breathing in carbon dioxide means that you've got to breathe out a lot of water. Uh, C4 plants, however, for example, they, they're they able to uh, fix carbon dioxide from the atmosphere uh, much more efficiently and lose a lot less water. So there's one advantage there to the C4. That's why we're trying to, for example, put the CO2 concentrating mechanism from cyanobacteria into plant cells. It's kind of like a single cell form of the C4 mechanism, uh, which we would hope enables them to use less nitrogen and less water to fix perhaps more carbon dioxide. Well, why not just co-locate them, you know, where you're going to have a field somehow, um, you know, have a bunch of cyanobacteria and ponds around it or near it or maybe is making up, you know, maybe you have a huge hydroponics operation and you have <coughs> cyanobacteria in the uh, in the water medium, so they produce a lot well, more CO2. Would, that, yeah, well, that, that would mean that there'd be a lot more CO2 capture, but not a, we wouldn't be contributing to crop yield. So really the key here is to try to improve crop yield and if people, for example, are eating rice or potatoes or maize or you know, corn, for example, then um, that's that's what we want to eat, so that's what we want to be able to uh, produce more of. So the idea is to try to incorporate that CO2 concentrating mechanism or a synthetic version of it into a plant cell so that the plant itself can uh, capture more CO2 from the atmosphere and actually turn that captured carbon into something that we can eat or into um, useful biomass. So what do we know from C4 plants? Like where do they tend to be and why do they have a different method of, of photosynthesis? Like what, you know, again, it's probably all environmental. Yeah, that's a really good question and you're absolutely right. It is environmental. It appears that most C4 plants tend to, um, tend to have appeared um, in evolutionary history in a lot of hot, dry areas and that's kind of driven by the fact that I mentioned that, that C4 photosynthesis seems to be a, a lot more water use efficient. So plants with C4 physiology have the capability of fixing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere without spending as much water. So that gives them an evolutionary gain in hotter, drier climates. So uh, over several million years, we've seen that uh, C4 photosynthesis has actually popped up quite a number of times in a lot of unrelated plant uh, species and it's nearly always in hotter, drier areas. I don't mean um, desert areas, but you know, hot, uh, warm, tropical areas um, to, where they tend to be favoured. Uh, but we also see other interesting ways of photosynthesising in, in deserts, for example, where there are other, uh, other efficiencies to be gained in trying to trap water and maintain um, water within a photosynthetic leaf. How much more efficient is a C4 plant versus a C3 one? 
Yeah, you've you've stumped me there. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they are much more efficient. And a really easy way to tell is if if you um, go to a sugarcane farm or even a, a maize or corn farm, you'll and you you walk into the the crop, you can immediately tell you're amongst C4 plants. Most most a lot of C4 crops are grasses, but they're not like the grass that you have on your lawn. They're you know they're four to 10 feet tall um, and that's kind of an indication of their relative efficiency. They're able to grow incredibly fast and incredibly tall despite the fact that they're grasses because they have this C4 mechanism. They're really efficient um, at capturing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere compared to their C3 cousins. Did C3 come before C4 evolutionarily or do you know? Yeah, so we think that C3 um, came first um, well, so C3 really is the basis of all, um, all carbon dioxide capture. So C3 really just describes the capture of CO2 in the initial step through the Rubisco enzyme into a C3 molecule. Now, everything that captures carbon dioxide through the photosynthetic process has to do that. And uh, cyanobacteria uh, were amongst the earliest organisms that could photosynthesize on the planet. And there's evidence there's there's some um, evidence of their existence over three and a half billion years ago on on the planet. So that's really interesting because that means we had organisms on the planet that were able to capture carbon dioxide from the atmosphere using probably using this enzyme Rubisco or a, a forebear of it. But that was in an atmosphere on the planet where there was a lot of carbon dioxide and practically no oxygen. And remember I said that oxygen is the molecule that Rubisco can't discern between oxygen and CO2. But because of the photosynthetic process, about two and a half billion years ago, that process got linked to the production of oxygen as a way of driving the system. And we started to get a lot of oxygen in the atmosphere. So from about two and a half billion years ago, we started to get oxygenic photosynthesis, production of oxygen in the atmosphere, and this enzyme was evolving as the Earth uh, grew older. It was evolving in an atmosphere that was increasingly full of oxygen and decreasing in the amount of carbon, carbon dioxide, despite the fact that carbon dioxide is what it wants to eat and oxygen is what it gets confused with. So as evolution proceeded, every organism that was then capturing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere using the Rubisco enzyme had to work out another strategy to get around the problems of the enzyme being slow and confusing oxygen with, car with carbon dioxide. Um, because uh, the way evolution works, we get branches of organisms appearing in different ecological niches over time. Different organisms were able to then, or given the opportunity, if you like, then to evolve different ways around the problem. So cyanobacteria, uh, we think that's what drove them to evolved this CO2 concentrating mechanism and the encapsulation of the Rubisco enzyme inside this carboxysome structure, whereas land plants, um, because they evolved in a different time and a different space, um, and they actually probably appeared when oxygen had a sudden burst in the atmosphere and they were given a different struggle um, evolutionarily to try to overcome the problems that Rubisco had. They, they essentially just made the solution, well, let's produce a lot more of the enzyme to increase the likelihood that we'll have a carbon dioxide fixation reaction happening. So 
you can see that we've had completely different uh, ways of, of getting over the Rubisco problem just because of difference in, differences in evolutionary time and ecological pressures. Uh, C4 right. plants then probably evolved because those, those land plants were able to move into hotter and drier environments and have that different ecological challenge. So what does it look like if you successfully integrate uh, blue-green algae into um, you know, photosynthetic plants? What, what do you expect them to do and what does success look like and what are some numbers associated with it? Yeah, well, that's a really good question. Of course, one of the, we wouldn't have done any of this if there hadn't been some mathematical modeling first to tell us whether or not it was, it was worth trying. Um, and we had colleagues at the University of Illinois that um, crunched some numbers some time ago to try and work out what are the likely outcomes if we were able to put this system into a, a, a chloroplast of a plant. Now, keeping in mind that a chloroplast of a plant originally has, it has its evolutionary origins as a cyanobacterium, but this, the evolution of the, the CO2 concentrating mechanism happened well after that, that incorporation event occurred, well after the, the construction of a chloroplast, we think. So the idea is, can we put in, we have to put in two components into the, the chloroplast to make this system work. One of them is a, um, a pump that pumps bicarbonate into the chloroplast. And we, calculations suggest that just pumping that bicarbonate in, uh, could give an increase in crop yield of around about somewhere between 5 and 15%. So around about 10% improvement just by pumping more bicarbonate into the cell. Because what that does is increase the relative concentration of carbon dioxide around the enzyme Rubisco. The other step to the whole process is constructing this, uh, this structure called the carboxazone with the Rubisco encapsulated inside it. If we just put that inside a chloroplast, because of the way the cyanobacterial Rubisco enzyme works, we actually would expect that to cause a problem for the plant. If, it, if, it, if we can't do that in conjunction with elevating the bicarbonate concentration by putting a pump in, then we actually expect those plants to be quite sick and we actually find that that is the case when we try to put some of these components in. That's essentially because the cyanobacterial Rubisco enzyme has its own little issues and it has evolved to operate inside a CO2 concentrating mechanism. So that kind of hints that we need both the pump and the carboxazome in order for this system to work. But then when we get the two components in a chloroplast inside a plant cell working together at the same time, then the, uh, the mathematical modelling predicts that we could have around about a 30 and maybe even up to possibly 60% improvement in yield. That upper level, level we really need to um, do some more calculations on, but 30% is an enormous improvement in yield. At least a 30% yeah. improvement in, yeah, at least a 30% improvement in CO2 fixation. But fixation and yield aren't necessarily exactly linked. It's, it's a lot more complicated than that. What about looking at the natural variation of um, cyanobacteria, either strains or species worldwide in different climates? I would think that there isn't just one kind, but there'd be many different uh, expressions of what they do, variations. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really good point, and we're really only just getting into that. So, th interestingly, there are two completely different types of cyanobacteria out there in the world. Uh, the ones that most people see in lakes and rivers are what we call beta cyanobacteria and they produce what we call beta carboxysomes and they have a different 
uh, evolutionary form of Rubisco inside them. There's another form out there called alpha cyanobacteria, and they have a, a different Rubisco in, um, inside their carboxosomes. And interestingly, we know a lot about the beta cyanobacterial rubiscos, because really this whole system comes down to how fast the rubisco enzyme can work. So the beta rubiscos tend to be a little bit faster than the alphas, but we've only examined the properties of, of, of a small handful of the alpha um, rubiscos in alpha carboxysomes. So we really need to have a look at a lot more of the organisms that are out there, because cyanobacteria are found in all sorts of ecological niches, uh, literally on every um, every continent on the planet, from Antarctica um, to North, North America, they're everywhere. So, yeah, there's a lot of research to be done on finding out what the true diversity is of these systems. And in fact, we're finding that there might even be other organisms, for example, um, deep sea vent um, bacteria or archaea that are um, able to also capture carbon dioxide but without using sunlight, we're finding that those organisms have some of the components to this system that we think we might be able to hijack for our, our own purposes. How much how much cyanobacteria is there on the Earth? Just a, an unbelievable amount? Or? Well, that's a really good question. There, there have been some suggestions that within the oceans, uh, 25% of, well, let's put that another way, within around the entire world, um, most of the um, carbon dioxide capture by photosynthetic organisms is in the oceans, and that's about that contributes about 50% of the global carbon dioxide capture, and about 50% of the ocean photosynthesis occurs in cyanobacterial cells. Uh, so that represents about 25% of the global carbon dioxide capture. That's just a really rough estimate, but it's it's probably not that far off. Um, and you also consider that in within freshwater lakes and rivers that cyanobacteria are quite dominant um, in certain times of the year. Cyanobacteria are a, a major, if not the major, contributor to what we call global um, primary productivity or, or CO2 capture from the atmosphere, um, in, uh, comparing them to other photosynthetic organisms. So they're really, really very important. <laughs> well... <laughs> And I guess all I've done is really open up 8 million more questions as to, um, you know, what could be done here. But it's been an interesting talk so far. Yeah, so, it, it, it's great. Well, thanks very much. Yeah. Um, it, what are some places for listeners to get resources to learn more? Well, the the RIPE consortium that I work for, Realizing Increased Photosynthetic Efficiency, people can look that up. They just have to um, Google RIPE photosynthesis. Um, I also work as part of the... Um, Australian Research Council's Centre of Excellence for Photosynthetic, uh, for translational photosynthesis. And that's a bit of a mouthful, but if you, um, follow your links or look for photosynthesis.org.au, that might give people a lot more information about the kind of work that we do. That's great. Well, Ben, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. It's been, uh, a Thank wide-ranging you. tour of subjects. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, sure. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, 
figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Thank you.